Okay, hello and welcome to the Clipping Chains podcast from clippingchains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? Good Monday morning. Oh, uh, let's see, it is about five o'clock on Friday, a couple days prior. I just went on a walk here in St. George. It's a cool 103. <laughs> oh my goodness. Our little taste of heaven here. Uh, yeah, I got the air conditioning off to record this intro, so let's keep this brief, shall we? <laughs> anyway, today on episode 36, I am so very pleased to welcome climber, author, editor, and prolific first ascensionist, Matt Samet, out of the front range of Colorado. Yeah, Matt's someone I've really admired for a long time. He's got a sense of humor I kind of enjoy. You know, some of you may not find that style to your liking but I like it. A little crusty, a little uh, antagonistic, you know, why not? Why not? Recently, Matt was unexpectedly laid off from his position as editor of Climbing Magazine, and that's a position he has held on and off for nearly two decades. And you know, I got to say, the state of media, notably print media, it's something that's really held my attention in recent years. And although I've considered reaching out to Matt for some time, this finally really felt like the right moment. So I'm glad we were able to connect. Just a couple of quick things before we jump in here. Just the standard administrative tasks I always have to do. Love it. I just want to remind you guys that if you are enjoying this show, you can help support this platform at Buy Me A Coffee. It's at buymeacoffee.com, or I've got a link right there in your show notes or really anywhere on the website. You can pay as little as a dollar a month or a one-time donation of $5. And that just helps keep the lights on here, guys. This is how this thing is run. So If you want to help out, I'd really appreciate that. Number two, I know all the podcasters say it, but I now am starting to understand that if you guys are really enjoying this, honestly, the easiest thing you can do, the simplest thing you can do is just leave a rating. Just mash those stars on your podcast app if you're on Spotify or Apple. And if you want to write something out, that's really awesome too. I read all of those, obviously, and I really appreciate what you guys have said already. That really makes me happy. And yeah, thank you. Really, honestly, thank you. Uh, Before we jump in on this one, you know, I do want to mention that towards the end, Matt's kid just kind of busted in on him. And, uh, you know, he's like, hey, buddy, you know, we're kind of in the middle of something. And I was going to edit it out, but I thought it was kind of cute. You know, I don't know if Matt's kind of a cute guy or not. And he maybe doesn't think it's cute at all, but I thought it was kind of cute. So I left it in. That's how professional we are here at Clipping Chains Enterprises. So join us as we take a deeper dive on media, journalism, balancing that climbing life and our other life obligations, as well as some good old-fashioned musings on the modern climbing life. Matt is so good at that, as we know. So without further ado, let's welcome Matt Salmon. All right. um, Yeah, well, we're going really any time here. How you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, I'm I'm doing okay today. Doing okay? All right. Mm Mm-hmm. What caught my attention, what I wanted to have you on for was, I believe it was May 20th, just a couple of weeks ago, you posted mm-hmm. something on Instagram where I follow you. And okay. It was this, this photo where you look like you were, I don't know, maybe on a boulder or something, you're talk, topping something out. You look actually almost happy. You kind of got a smile on your face, but the content of that post was really quite different. I guess I'll leave it there. Why don't you take us through 
what that post was all about and where we are today. Um, yeah, I wrote that post, I think, late at night on the 20th or something, which was a Friday. So Wednesday, May 18th, I was um, laid off from my job as as editor of, of Climbing Magazine, mm-hmm. which is a position I'd held for for five years. Um, but I'd been affiliated with the magazine since the basically the mid-1990s. After I graduated college, I started um, freelancing for them. And I'd been a desk editor for them on and off since 2002. So, you know, in a way, it was sort of the end of of 20 years of, of, of kind of constantly being a magazine editor. Right. Um, yeah, I was out climbing at the monastery up near Estes park in big Thompson Canyon. And they'd put a meeting on my schedule that morning, you know, one of those sudden meetings and you're like, Oh no, what's this about? <laughs> um, so I took the call at two fifteen up there and it was one of the corporate guys and a woman from HR and they you know, started in with a, this is not the call I want to have to make. And I've, you know, so-and-so here from HR. And I was like, I know what this Mm -hmm. is. I've been laid off before. Um, So they laid me off. I didn't really listen to what they had to say. I was kind of in a state of shock and pretty angry. Sure. Um, So I, you know, I caught a whiff of strategic restructuring. And after that, I I just didn't want to hear much more. Um, So that Friday, you know, I, I didn't sleep Wednesday night and Thursday was a bad day. Friday started to feel a little better. But I think I probably the post you saw was a picture of me bouldering at Carter Lake by my my friend Paul DeSatko. Um, Yeah, I just kind of posted about what happened and, and, you know, that the layoff was sudden, that it was, you know, I think heartbreaking for me and and for so many other people. I mean, I think that the main thing that that I, I was lamenting or grieving and that I still do is sort of what becomes of the contributors, mm-hmm. you know, because that's the lifeblood of the magazine and climbing has given so many people, uh, their, their start. I mean, people who are big names now, you know, like John Krakauer. That's and, right. Yeah. I mean, David Roberts used to write for climbing magazine. I mean, if you go back through the archives, you see these big names, tons of photographers who are now, you know, very high end folks like Jimmy Chen and, and Andy Mann and, you know, Tara Kirshner. I mean, just all, all these, all these people. I mean, I, I, yeah, I couldn't name all the names off the top of my head, but there's 52 years of history. The magazine was started in 1970. Um, but you know, the gist of it, I think was that, you know, I don't, I don't know the specific details, but it climbing was at five print issues a year. And it sounds like print was either going away or going down to one print issue a year, the ascent annual, hmm. um, and everything was going online. So I was laid off as was the art director since we worked primarily on print, but this was part of a larger round of layoffs at, at, at outside Inc, which is the company that, that owns, um, climbing magazine. So that's mainly what the post was about. You know, and there are other, other aspects to it too. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you really got folks going. I mean, there's quite a long comment thread with lots of opinions about the state of media or the state of climbing at large. And of course, you know, I like to talk to people who have a lot of differing views or approaches on how they kind of fund this life around climbing. And so, but you really got people going on maybe climbing magazines in particular, but certainly just the state of the industry. So maybe we'll back up a minute. How okay. long ago did Climbing Incorporated take over that magazine? Oh, did Outside Incorporated? Or, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Outside um, Incorporated. So Climbing was owned by A Media until 2020. In August 2020, they were sold to Pocket Outdoor Media, 
which was a small company here in Boulder. I'd never actually heard of it. They own some like triathlon and cycling magazines and they bought climbing as part of the sale of the outdoor group and okay. was selling that off. Um, AIM, I think, still exists, but they've been selling off various parts of their business, uh, you know, for whatever reason. You know, we're owned by Pocket, and this is all in the middle of the pandemic. Um, then Pocket actually bought Rock and Ice, which, you know, for years had been Climbing's main competitor. They were kind of competing for the same market, same advertisers, same readers, mm-hmm. same contributors, a lot of the same content. Um you know, very similar magazines. And a lot of the staff at Rock and Ice had worked at Climbing. There's right. been kind of a, in 2002, about half the staff of Climbing left, um, you know, bought Rock and Ice uh, so they could run run independently. Um, you know, so just a lot of overlap. And the two titles were merged all under kind of the Climbing umbrella. Uh, and that was, that went along for a bit. And then at some point, I guess in 2021, I don't know, yeah, you could Google it, or, or 5280 had a pretty good um, article about all this. Okay, try and find but, that. Yeah, I look for that. Uh, just written in the last week, you know, it's sort of about all the, the back and forth. But Pocket Outdoor Media bought Outside Magazine from, I think, Mariah Media. Um, you know, the owner of Outside had had been doing it a long time. It sounds like he wanted to get out. So at that point, Pocket Outdoor Media became Outside Inc. So that was, I guess, about a year ago. Um, okay. You know, so that's the current owner of Climbing right now. And so they obviously then own Outdoor Magazine and a whole bunch of other stuff under that umbrella, I imagine. Yeah, they own Outside. They own Backpacker. They own Ski. You know, there are a bunch of other titles. Um Yoga Journal, yeah. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't keep up track of all the magazines at AIM, and I certainly couldn't keep track of all <laughs> of them at, at Outside. I mean, you know, you'd know some of them because we worked in the same building, so I'd know some of the other editors, you know, if they were in my immediate area. But I actually, yeah, I have no idea what the, the full list of publications is. Uh, a, lo- a, lo- a lot of stuff, a lot of outdoor and outdoor sports publications. Well, I certainly want to talk more specifically about you and your career in writing, because I know that's a career choice that a lot of people certainly glamorize or have an idea of wanting to do. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'd like to maybe focus for a little bit longer on this. You know, we talked a little offline the other day on like the state of print media, right? So a lot of, I mean, the reason you're being laid off, you know, at least according to you, is that this print side is is considerably shrinking. And this isn't Mm -hmm. just something related to the climbing industry. Um, And I'm just... In in preparing for this interview, I just very briefly, I'll admit, um, just kind of started digging more broadly at large in 2021 print. And this is a what's new in publishing.com. I'm not sure this may be a UK publication. And they have this article that says newspapers, newspapers continue to decline, but for magazines, it's complicated. So what, what has been your impression of where magazines have been headed in, in recent years? Now, maybe obviously your impression of this is going to be more specific to the climbing industry, but mm-hmm. where have you seen that? Is it, is it just a global, I don't know, journalism industry at, all, at, at large? Well, yeah, I can only speak from my experience. You know, I've been both an editor at and a contributor to various magazines, you know, freelance writer. Um, I mean, let me put it this way. When I started at climbing in 2002 as a desk editor, after writing them f- for them for years, you know, we were based out in Carbondale, and I'm trying to think of how many editors there were. There were maybe four of us. 
and two people on ad sales and someone on marketing and two art directors. Um, you know, they didn't have a publisher at the time, but there was like an operations guy. I mean, it was a pretty like robust staff and everyone had, you know, a very specific role that they needed to fulfill. Someone was on Cirque, someone was on, um, uh, you know, ad, ad allocation, like placing the ads in the book. I think we were doing something like 12 issues a year. It might've been monthly, mm-hmm. you know, or at least eight, you know, including a gear guide and a photo annual. And, you know, this was sort of after the dot-com bust, but there were still, you could still fill those magazines. I mean, what supports a magazine, you know, primarily is, is, I mean, you know, the magazine model is basically this. You create content that attracts subscribers. Mm-hmm. Those subscribers sign up. The more subscribers you have, the more successful you can be with ad sales because what you're wanting to do is put eyeballs in front of brands, right? That's right. So you tell them, hey, we can deliver 50,000 eyeballs to you. That's how big all circulation is or, or whatever it is. You know, the higher your circ, the easier it is to get ads. You know, back then there were a lot of endemics you know, as there always have been. And, and those are the, the companies that we all know and, and use and love, you know, the Black Diamond, Sportiva, mm-hmm. Scarpa, Trango, you know, on and on and on. These these niche climbing companies. And, and they've always stayed with the brand, I think, because they, they view it as a good way to get messaging about their products out. But there are also a lot of non-endemics, you know. So especially before the dot-com bust, uh, if you look back in the kind of the, the late 90s, I mean, they were running sometimes 150 page books. Cause there were like these two page car ads from Ford and Rolex. And, <laughs> yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. St- stuff that, you know, big, big money pulling in, um, to support, support the title. And that I think with the internet, you know, has just gotten less and less and less. I mean, at this point, if you're Ford, why would you want to advertise in climbing magazine when you have Instagram <laughs> and Facebook and Google ads and, and all that. Uh, it just doesn't make sense, but you know, it wasn't a sudden thing. I think it was, it was slow, but you know, I, I worked with climbing through various owners and I mean, each, each had its pros and its cons. Um, but they, you know, it had been years since it was really independently owned. It was owned by a small company scram for a while. So it was able to be sort of lithe and, and agile and, and kind of like what it had been back in the day. I mean, I think it was started, you know, just up in Aspen by like a couple of guys. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at issue one, you know, they're like, they've got the P.O. box and hey, if you've got some photos, send us your slides. I mean, it was all very like, you know, seat of the pants, let's pull this together. Right, right. Um, which is probably in a way is what it should be because climbing is such a, at its core, such a sort of scruffy do-it-yourself sport. Um, That's true. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I just think over the years it shifted, but you know, so that was 2002. And I remember at that point there was a big staff, there was money for like editorial trips that summer. I took a two week, two week trip to go run ridges in the mountains here in the Southwest. And it was all paid for. And I got to write an article about it. You know, Mm. it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun, but you know, fast forward to I was there during the, the Great Recession, 2008 to 2010. And at a certain point near the end, I was literally the only editor there, uh, which is why I left. I was working 90, 100-hour weeks. Hmm. Like, wow. Yeah, I'd gone from a staff of one and a half down to one half, down to just me. And <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I know, exactly. Like, it just, 
it got it got nuts and that actually happened again during the pandemic in mm, 2020 okay. uh before climbing and rocket ice were merged it was just me it at that point the frequency was less i think we were six issues a year so uh i was able to do it but again um yeah i mean i i think that would be more telling than anything just contrasting those sort of the golden years of the late nineties into the early two thousands with sort of what's happening now. Um, you know, reduction in ad support equals reduction in resources equals a reduction in staff, you know, reduction in page count, everything just sort of shrinks across the board. And I think that's, that's the trend that, that, that I saw at least at, at climbing. And, you know, with that too, when you lose the page count, you lose and you lose um, staff, you lose breadth of coverage, right? Mm -hmm, I mean, if you only have 80 pages and one guy working there, I mean, you're going to get what you're going to get kind of, (laughs) I mean, if you have 150 pages and six people working there, you're going to get an editor who's an alpinist and an editor who's a boulder or an editor who loves sport climbing and they have their contacts and their resources and their viewpoint. And I think, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what made those issues back then, you know, under Michael Kennedy in that era. So great that you're just, they were able to do sort of do big, bold things that covered the whole, the whole universe of, of climbing. Well, and in those days, this was truly the only place you got new information, except for just sitting around a beer at a bar somewhere. Right. I mean, where else were people getting any news of what was going on in the climbing world? Were there other places? I mean, I guess there were some videos that would come out once in a while. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Actually. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, you're right. I mean, I remember when I started climbing in the eighties, the only climbing news you got was through the magazines. I mean, right. that was it. You'd go to the mountain shop and eagerly await the new issue and open it. And you couldn't find out about new routes anywhere else either. You know, there was the base camp section where um, correspondents from across the country were were sending in new routes. I mean, there was that and guidebooks. Yeah, but you're right. Even, I mean, even in the early days of the internet, you know, there'd be some news here and there online, but, you know, Instagram... How old is Instagram? Ooh, I mean, it still feels new to me, but I think maybe, I think it became more popular around 2012, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. But like YouTube and Facebook were 2006. So yeah, yeah. before those, there was, you're right. I mean, it was still mostly the magazines and their websites. I guess, yeah, the chicken and egg debate. I mean, did advertisers leave in favor of these new, more digital forms, like the quick hit that we all now are getting more increasingly addicted to, whether it's mm-hmm. news or climbing content or fashion or whatever, you can scroll through Instagram and see who just sent what every day. Yeah, you can. So why would you need a middleman to <laughs> yeah. tell you what's right. already on Instagram? Oh, it's it's a good point. Yeah, I think one thing that changed, you know, so a lot of the news we see on Instagram is from professional athletes, right? Right, They're, right some of the the best climbers and they're in these exotic locales and there's a pretty photo. Um, (laughs) You you know, their companies and their brands support them to go out and do this. And they're also doing this in exchange for, for sponsorship from the brands. But yeah, before the pros only had us to help get their message out, That's right. you know, and they would come to us, but once they're able to do that directly, they stopped coming to us too, which I think also dries up the content. Well, I mean, not that all that content is, is must print, but you know, so say you're a, say you're an athlete director for a company and your athletes 
aren't appearing in the magazine anymore. I mean, I think that's also a factor. You're like, well, why should I spend my ad dollars with you? Your athletes mm-hmm. aren't there. Right. They're on Instagram and they, you know, this company might get more bang for their buck out of, you know, a simple hashtag listing their, listing the sponsors at the bottom. Yeah. But I mean, you're absolutely right too. And it's also a timing thing. I mean, magazines are always, you know, you're always working one issue in advance. So say tomorrow someone does a, a 516A. I mean, <laughs> that's on Instagram by Friday, you know, by Saturday. Right. Whereas in a magazine with its, you know, next deadline six weeks out, people aren't going to learn about that for another six to eight weeks, at which point it's not even news anymore. So I think that's also a factor. I mean, you know, the mags have websites now and you can get stuff up immediately. But again, yeah, like a lot of, I mean, a lot of quote unquote climbing news too that I see is just people cut and pasting Instagram posts. So totally. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like someone's paying you to hit command C and command V. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if you need any special expertise for that. Yeah. It's just a bunch of embedded social media posts. No, I've yeah. noticed that trend and but, you know, I feel like something's missing there. You know, like you can write a long post about your latest sin, but I, I do kind of miss that long narrative of going more deep into the story or maybe mm-hmm. the backstory about the athlete beyond just this one single achievement that a longer narrative used to capture that it seems to be missing from something like an Instagram post. Because let's face it, we all just are like, oh, what, who did what? And just kind of no one reads these long captions. It's too many words. You know, you got things to do. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. You're just seeing, I mean, with the Instagram caption, you're really just seeing the tip of the iceberg. You're seeing the send and the the realization of all this effort, and it's a pretty photo. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I I don't really really scroll down past a paragraph or two. Cause, <laughs> yeah, just why? Why would I? Like, my eyes hurt, and I can't read that small print. <laughs> I'm, I'm old and cranky, so I, I'm just like, yeah, oh, cool, you did some hard thing, and I see a little green checkbox. Um, yeah, I... I I do think that there is still a place for that deeper storytelling. Um, I mean, that's what we were trying to do at climbing in the in the last year, year and a half after climbing a rock and ice merge. You know, bigger features, nicer photos, kind of a more of a, a, a journal feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I do think there's still a, 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 even if there's not a place for it, I think there's a necessity for it. I mean. Why is the uh, American Alpine Journal so many years running? You know, it's because we need it. It's because we love it. We want the stories behind the ascents. That's mm-hmm. that's what matters, the human story, the the emotions, the drama, you know, not the not the actual moment when you get to the top of something. I mean, that, that's almost a foregone conclusion. So I yeah, I think that need for storytelling is, is always there, you know, both for record keeping as a journal of the sport and for yeah, I mean, just portraying what's most interesting about climbing, which is always the human stories. So I, you know, I know that we were still trying to do that at climbing. I, I just don't know that, I don't know, I guess we didn't succeed, or I guess the company that that, that owned climbing didn't didn't value that vision or, or didn't see it as successful. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think that that need is still there. I mean, remember blogs, like, Right. We don't have a, we don't even have blogs anymore. Like pro climbers used to have blogs, and they yeah. they go pretty deep on that stuff. And now they don't. That's and true. now there's yeah, I mean now there's you know YouTube is a lot of fun, and you know there are some brilliant films out there on YouTube, like that one that that Bear Cam made for the North Face. I forget what it does, but it mostly focuses on Maddie Hong and, and Switzerland. It's in black mm. and white. Uh, you know, I forget the name of it, but it, it's brilliant because. 
three quarters of the video shows these guys failing. Like it actually shows what happens. And then the final quarter is like them succeeding on these things that they've been working on for days and for weeks. And like, it's great. Like you're actually getting the story behind the ascent. Um, So obviously like with, with film and, and these things, you can still do that deeper storytelling, but yeah, I agree. Like even on Instagram, I mean, a long post, I mean, they're so formulaic too. It's like, I did this rude checkbox. Here's a few list of a few of my personal problems and here's how this ascent <laughs> solved them. And <laughs> it's, I mean, <laughs> I guess that's a cynic's view, but it's sort of, it's kind of cookie cutter, right? Oh yeah. I mean, there is, there is something formulaic about it. I agree. I mean, there, it, it is a new form of, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, now it's increasingly being put in the athlete's hands for self-promotion, not necessarily to their own. I mean, I think a lot of athletes do it begrudgingly. I mean, I do think it is something they have to do um, mm-hmm. for contractual reasons. I mean, I'm neither one of us are professional climbers, so maybe we have no business talking about it. But, you know, it is this weird thing where I've, I've talked to several um, sponsored climbers and professional climbers on this platform. And they all admit that it's something they have to do whether they like it or not. But yeah. And so maybe they're just trying to find a new way to just not just put a checkbox and, you know, 14 C done, uh, you know? So, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. I mean, if you're a private person, it's probably got to be a horrible thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, just yesterday I wrote a story for climbing.com. I think it's going to come out today. The second, it is, yes. Yeah, it'll come out today, I think, or tomorrow. Okay. You know, about Molly Mitchell, who's a pro climber and great writer and a very thoughtful person. Um, and I'd worked with her on a couple of different projects at climbing, including a feature about her son of China Doll. But, you know, she's been very open about um, dealing with anxiety and, mm-hmm. and trichotillomania, um, which is compulsive hair pulling. And, you know, how that interfaces with her climbing. And she's given TED Talks and, you know, she's helped a lot of people. And so she had taken this, you know, fall off this, trying to do this route up in Boulder Canyon, crank it on gear, the same one that Brad Gobright fell on and got hurt. And mm-hmm. she'd fallen also and and broken her back. And, you know, it was a huge setback. I mean, physically, she was pretty lucky, but, you know, mentally to hit the ground from 30 feet uh, was awful. So there's this whole struggle to come back. And, you know, even I was, I was it was, it's actually fun to put the story together. You know, it's not for the print mag, it's for the site, but it was, it felt kind of like the old vein of storytelling. Like, you know, we got into how she sort of processed all that trauma and fear and, and, and just, you know, Hmm. made, made this comeback. I mean, you know, it's not only getting back on the horse of climbing, but getting back on and doing the very route that you've gotten badly hurt on. So I, yeah, I, I felt like, you know, that, there's there's still room for that. I mean, even if it's if it's digital, you're still kind of getting at the story behind the story. I think. Oh yeah. It's just it's all being kind of rethought right now. I guess that's what it feels like. So didn't they both didn't they both break their back on that route? Yeah, Brad broke his back and his ankle, and Molly broke two vertebrae. I guess wow. he fell lower than she did, and like you know, fifteen twenty feet, and pulled his one piece, and she fell at about 30 feet, like from above the crux and stripped all our gear, um, you know, just hit the ground. Okay. Maybe that one doesn't deserve to be on the bucket list after all. Yeah. Well, it also <laughs> has three bolts, so you can, you can do it safely, you know, and just stick with the first bolt and then clip the other two and, and yeah, not, not worry about death or injury. So that, that 
that'd be another way to do it. Well, so this is interesting. I didn't realize. So you just wrote a piece for climbing, even though you were laid off as the editor. So you still have a relationship with them to do some work? Yeah. I mean, I need work. Honestly, I have sure. three children. And, sure. you know, I was a little, I was pretty pissed the first week. I was like, I'm done with the mag. But the people who are still working there on the title itself are good people, um, you know, and then they reached out to me pretty quickly and said they like me writing for the site. So, yeah, I mean, okay. you know. So you're see. not completely severed by this company. You just... Well, I'm a freelancer. I gotcha. mean, yeah, I'm not employed by them in any way, shape, or form. I'm just basically trying to rebuild my freelance business. So, you know, this... And this is fun. Like, I always love writing about climbing. So this was a fun opportunity, and, and I'll be doing other stuff with them. Um, yeah, but I, I'm no longer an employee there. Okay. Well, yeah, let's go there. Um, let's talk about your career as a writer. Why did you get into this? Like, let's take, take us to the kind of time frame on when you got into this. You've been in this business uh, for a long time and what mm -hmm. got you there? Um, you know, I, I was really into climbing as a teenager and it was sort of all I was into and didn't really have much direction other than rock climbing. So when I went to look at colleges to go to, I, I looked at, at schools that were near rocks, mm -hmm. uh, as one does, and settled on <laughs> CU Boulder, um, <laughs> just because Boulder seemed like it had the most climbing the closest by. I also looked at like Tucson and Prescott and and University of New Mexico and Albuquerque, where I already lived, um, and came here. And I think I was a geology major, Oh, yeah. no way. That's what I did. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. But you probably actually finished your degree, right? Yeah. I, I got two of them, actually, in geology. Oh, so, yeah. see. I stuck yeah, with that, it. That's what, it helps to be smart, which I'm not. <laughs> I don't know. So I just, well, <laughs> now I try and write, so maybe I'm doing it all backwards. So. Yeah, yeah. Then maybe you screwed up. I, I don't know. But I I mean, I, basically, I was just too much of a, a blockhead to get a geology degree. I mean, even the basic okay. science. I'm horrible at science. Uh, and even the basic science courses that you have to take in that first year, I mean, I took them, but you know, I, I barely squeaked by, I'm just not, I'm not that good at science and math. Uh, you know, so I realized I needed to switch majors. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I was talking to my dad and he's like, Oh, well, why don't you do journalism? You like climbing. You could write about climbing. And I was like, huh, sure. Why not? Um, <laughs> okay. yeah. Sounds like a typical so college experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I mean, I know some people go to college, they know exactly what they want to do. They're like, I want to be a mechanical engineer, but I was just sort of uh, futzing along. But <laughs> yeah, I got a, a degree in um, print journalism, news editorial, uh, newspaper focus, newspaper and magazines. And then once I left college, I actually moved to Italy right after that to be with my girlfriend then, oh, wow. who was Italian. Yeah. And before I left, I was like, well, why don't I call climbing? Because I knew the editors there from climbing at Rifle. You know, I'd see them out there. Mm -hmm. um, just knew them personally and called and said, I'm moving to Europe. Do you guys need anything? And they said, oh, yeah, we could use World Cup write-ups and anything else, you know, news. And this was at the point, you know, this was 1996. So this was at that point when they had a 150-page book to fill, you know. Mm -hmm. So they had, I don't know, 100, 110 pages of content they needed to come up with. So uh, they were hungry for content. Um, and from that, I think I wrote like a guest essay and then that grew into a column. Um, Dave Pegg, who was my editor on that, I think really believed in me and, 
you know, him and Allison Osius and Mike Bench and Dwayne Raleigh gave me, gave me a lot of great opportunities. And I just wrote more and more for them kind of through the late nineties and into 2002. Um, so in 2002, when about half the staff left to go to rock and ice, there were openings for desk editors. And at that point I'd just finished graduate school and actually wasn't sure what was next. And this opportunity kind of fell in my lap and, and I took it. Um, mm. Yeah. So that's sort of how it, it all came together. Um, you know, so I worked at climbing 2002 to 2003, worked at Rock and Ice 2003 to 2005, then was back at climbing again, 2006 to 2010. Then I left and that was the point where I was working 90, hundred hour weeks and I just was so burned out. I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and then I came back to climbing and then I had a freelance business for about seven years and was home a lot with my kids because they were very young at that point. So I was doing childcare about half the week and, and freelancing, you know, the rest of it. Um, and went back to climbing in 2017. Again, kind of a happenstance thing. Like I was working at the same company then, a media that owned climbing, but had been laid off as the copy chief at um, Yoga Journal and Vegetarian Times because Vegetarian Times folded. Mm. And was sort of there, like hanging on half time or something, just enough to get health insurance, like doing some copy editing for Yoga Journal and climbing. And at that point, Julie Ellison, who'd been the editor of Climbing for a year, didn't want to do it anymore. So she left and was like, oh, you should apply. So I applied and had been there, you know, for five years until I was laid off this time. Hmm. So that's sort of the trajectory. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's too much information. But, you know, basically the long and short of it is, is that all throughout you know, since 2002, I've been a desk editor and, and a writer. So, you know, writing for the title, writing for other magazines, freelance, and then desk editing, you know, helping clean up other people's copy and helping bring it all together uh, to produce the magazine. Yeah. I mean, I guess without getting too dull with the minutiae or anything, like what's a day in the life like? I mean, how much time were you spending writing versus doing like copy editing work, editing work? Um, you know, it just depends on where you would have caught me on those various times I worked there, okay. uh, you know, and it's probably half and half, probably half the time you're editing and the other half you're writing. Yeah. I'd say something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there were times when, like when I was the only one at climbing, when I was writing like all the news. So I, <laughs> I might've been writing all day. Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I think half and half or 70% editing, 30% writing somewhere in that range. Now, were you working like a standard kind of four? I mean, you mentioned some extreme workloads at various times, but more or less, usually were you working like a standard 40-hour work week, like at an office, or were you working kind of remotely? Were you like a digital nomad out in like cafes across the world, or how did that look, you know? Um, you know, I was mostly at a desk. It's a desk editing position. You need to be there okay. uh, to to work with your coworkers and to pass files back and forth and to, to help produce the magazine. Yeah. I was primarily at a desk. I, I'm not much of a big traveler these days anyway, just because sure. of, because of my family reality. But um, yeah, it mostly was. And then during the pandemic, like everyone, you know, who had a, a, a white collar job, we, you know, went remote. Sure. So I've been working at, at home for, however long this has been how long has the pandemic been going on now two, two and, and a half, half now yeah no two i guess two two years yeah yeah so for the last two years i've been at home which was entertaining because i have a basement office and my kids the main part of the house where they're all day is directly above me and um 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> stomping board- around. Oh yeah, yeah. Stomping is the least of it. The the best was when they invented this game called Pipsqueaks, in which they climbed up on top of this like eight foot tall bureau and then would jump off onto the futon from you know eight, <laughs> ten, twelve feet in the ground directly over my office. Yeah, over and over and over again. Yeah, and I'm yeah. down there trying to focus. It's like, oh, God. Sounds like the school from home situation I've heard from every parent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it was really bad, of course, in the early days because, you know, kids didn't really know what to do with their lives were so... Uh, <laughs> Loose, turned, turned unstructured, upside. yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So they pipsqueaks, that's, that's what was going on. <laughs> How old are your kids? Um, seven and 10. And then we have a, nine, a 10 month old baby. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So pretty young, yeah. wild, yeah. wild years. Yeah, exactly. Well, I didn't expect it to ask, but you mentioned Dave Pegg and I did not know him, the late Dave mm-hmm. Pegg. Um, mm-hmm. I think he passed away. What was that? 2015, maybe 2013. 13. Was it? Wow. Okay. No, it may have been 24, 2014. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. I don't know where I want to ask that, but yeah, what was it like working about? It? I've heard a lot about him over the years. Um, I know mm-hmm. he eventually started his own publication company. Was that Wolverine? Was that Wolverine? His? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dave was great. I I really miss him. A ton of people do. You know, he was uh very English. He had a mathematics degree, so a very smart guy. I think maybe mm. like a master's degree in math or something like that. I didn't know and that. just sort of yeah, he just sort of found his way to the u.s like i first met him in albuquerque new mexico where i grew up i think his wife had taken a job there at the time and he just came out yeah and sort of got on board with climbing magazine but yeah he was a a very good editor you know he he gave me a lot of opportunities um yeah dave did did so much for uh climbing particularly on the western slope you know Mm -hmm. he wrote all those rifle guidebooks all this rebolting him and, and josh gross really put a lot into uh, new crags out there in um, in East Elk Canyon and Main Elk, you mm-hmm. know, the canyons between Newcastle and Rifle. Yeah, I I, I miss Dave. Um, it's, it's sad and tragic that he's that he's gone. Yeah, I remember his wife. I believe wrote a really good article in the Alpinist. I want to say maybe a year before he passed away, and mm-hmm. it was all about the sacrifice of a wife who was married to someone so addicted to climbing who increasingly keeps moving closer and closer to rifle. And uh, it was just this really, it was this really great thing. I'll try and find it. I don't even know if I can link to it at this point. Um, yeah. I, I remember it was Fiona wrote that and uh-huh. it was in rock and ice. Yeah. It was like a three part series. I, I might still be around online. I'll, I'll try good. and dig that up. It was re- cause I remember giving it to my wife cause my wife does not climb and she understands the sacrifices. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what have been some of the realities of, of your career in writing on basically what you thought it might be like versus reality? I mean, whether that's pay or lifestyle flexibility, any anything like that that comes to mind? Well, geez. I mean, <laughs> Maybe that's, that's too big of a question. but Well, it's this question that's so dynamic. It's hard to answer because there's been so much change. I think, mm-hmm. I think what I didn't know 20 years ago that, that I know now is, is, that, is that there's no stability in magazines. I think there used to be, but yeah, so many people who are like me trained in journalism and have worked at the mags and written for them. I've seen so many of them basically just leave the field entirely because they were sick of it. They're sick of the layoffs and the 
conglomeration and the corporate owners and the instability and the insecurity. And I think that's something I just didn't know about. If I'd known that back in 2002, I probably would have yeah, become a teacher or something like that. I'm, mm. Yeah, some people roll with this better, but I'm not the kind of guy who likes constant change and big upheaval. I'm just not. I'm sort of a quiet person who has to have everything sort of organized and, uh, you know, duck, ducks in a row. Sure. So I, I think I think that's that's the big thing. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would have gone into it. Um, but at the same time, it it's really helped me build deepen my connection to the sport and to the people who do it. And and that's invaluable and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, so many trips and experiences and people I met and, and stories I've worked on and the writing and editing skills I've developed wouldn't have happened without the magazines. So, Mm. you know, I'm, I'm certainly very grateful for that. Um, I really like the gear testing too, because I'm a gear nerd. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I really love, especially rock shoes. Like I'm sitting here looking at my closet right now and I don't know, I'm looking at like 30 pairs of rock shoes or something like that. Um, I know a little bit nuts, but it's down from, down from a hundred or something. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, yeah, you know, the opportunity to see how the sport and industry have grown from a somewhat of an insider perspective. I, I think we're good too. Um, you know, the cons, uh, there was a lot of stress, you know, deadline-driven jobs, deadline-driven jobs does, I can't, it's not, deadline-driven <laughs> dr- jobs are very stressful. I mean, the deadline mm-hmm. always creeps up and you have to structure your life around that. So travel and family and things like that, you know, there'd be two weeks of every deadline cycle where I'm like, I can't do anything else right now. Like, mm-hmm. I, I can't go anywhere. Don't ask me to do anything. You know, I'd be overworked and, and get kind of grumpy and uh, you know, short temper because you're just so stressed. I mean, you're trying to bring all these pieces together. I mean, you're basically project managing. I'm sure it's somewhat like a director who's, you know, on the first night of, of staging a play or something, you're relying on all these other people and people aren't always reliable and they're random and, and things happen. And yeah, I, I, I think that stress was, was hard. I think one thing that was also hard was you know, the online criticism of the mm. magazines and sometimes of me and, and of our efforts. I mean, at a certain point, I just stopped caring. I'm like, I don't really care what some person who I probably wouldn't ever even like thinks and says on the internet. Like, it just is not, I, I'm not going to get that, you know, heated about it. But at the same time, you're a human being. And when you said you're done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I don't know. How do you, do you ever get negative comments on the, on the podcast on iTunes and, or anything like that? Have you had to deal with that at all? Um, yes. I mean, well, not on iTunes, thankfully so far. Um, okay, good. but, uh, yeah, you know, I'll get the occasional email or, I mean, people are usually so far, it's been usually fairly respectable, but I don't know, maybe a magazine's different. Maybe you're push to, to push the envelope a little bit more or write kind of clickbaity titles that may get people a little riled. I don't know. I try and be, I try and avoid that kind of stuff because it's my own, my own show and my own deadlines and things like that. But certainly mm-hmm. I've gotten people who have emailed me saying, oh, I, you know, missed some huge blind spot or I didn't consider this. And yeah, of course that stuff's really hard. I'll, I'll mull over it for a day or two, even if it was not really that bad of a critique, you know, it's hard not to take it personally. But it sounds like they're giving you constructive criticism, right? They're like, here's what you could have done better or... Yeah, for the most part. I I have to admit, I haven't gotten a whole lot of just blatant, just, you know, 
total trolls. Maybe that's a testament of not having a huge you know, reader or listener <laughs> base. Now, maybe uh-huh. if all of a sudden it was, you know, had 10, 10x or 100x the listener or reader base, you'd get the trolls. You know, I think that's inevitable with growth. Right. Um, so maybe you should ask someone who has a bigger fan base than me. But. More, who has more, more, more trolls. All right. right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll check in with you in a year when <laughs> yeah, you've got okay. a bigger, bigger audience and more trolls. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one thing that got old, you know, it's just oh, being sure. trashed all the time. I mean, on the mountain project and before a super topo, the forum before oh, yeah. Chris McNamara set it down. I mean, those guys were horrible. They would just trash the mags ad infinitum. I mean, especially climbing and rock guys rockclimbing.com and you know you're reading this and you're just like what the hell like it's like what do these people do all day like is your job i mean these people have jobs like how would you like it if i went home at night and just spent the time on forums talk you know like say this guy is i don't know picks up garbage you know in a truck and then i go home at night and get on a garbage truck for him and say what a what a loser this guy (laughs) you're just like you know, why are you doing this? I guess it's because climbers care so much about the sport and it's such an, an individualistic sport that if they don't, if they don't see their view of the sport reflected in it, they, they get incensed. I mean, I don't know. I remember years ago, Andrew Bisharat had a, a funny comment that was like, you know, the only thing that would make all our readers happy is if we just put mirrors on every page of the magazine. <laughs> 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 Which I thought was, was pretty, yeah, it was pretty spot on. So, you know, that, that got old. I mean, you know, it, after 20 years, I mean, I, I was reading the Mountain Project thread after someone started and said something like Outside Inc. is gutted climbing magazine, I think was the title of the thread. And I looked on there and actually everyone was pretty complimentary of my efforts. And I was grateful to see that because mm. it, it wasn't always that way. But even then there were still... The usual comments like I don't even read the rags anymore. They haven't they haven't been good for fifteen years. I mean, it's just that kind of stuff. And you're like, how do you even know if you haven't read them for fifteen years? How do you even know <laughs> if they're good or bad? I mean, and and you know that morphed over the years, but yeah, I mean now there's this sort of social media interface, and I definitely don't I don't envy the digital editors who who have to deal with that. You know that if the timber of your post is off by by one degree, you're, you're just getting slaughtered in the comments. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what are some of the common sources of frustration from readers? Like, what really gets people going? Are there common themes? I don't know. Lack of mirrors in the magazines, <laughs> I guess, to, <laughs> yeah, with which enough. to see themselves. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I could come up with specific adva- examples, but they might not be uh, suitable to say out loud. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think they a, a lot of it would just sort of be this notion that we are these out of touch, like non entities, corporate drones who didn't climb or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that that was sort of the common the common denominator with a lot of these criticisms that we just didn't know what we were talking about. It's like we're trying. I mean, I never I never didn't try. Mm-hmm. I always tried. I was like I'm doing the best that I can to my abilities. Like I'm not omniscient. I'm not some ultimate arbiter of the sport and all its ethical decisions and, and, and Byzantine workings. You know, <laughs> I'm just a, I'm just a guy, a climber like everyone else. And I'm just trying to put out something that has good storytelling in it, you know, to, to help readers connect with the sport. So, yeah, I think that 
the main criticism that I often saw level that the magazine and editors is just that you you know you guys are out of touch. You don't know what you're doing. You're you're, you're full of shit. That that mm. seemed like kind but, of. But I mean, you're you're as much of a climber's climber as there is. I mean, you're a prolific first ascensionist. You've been climbing since forever. I mean, you're a climber. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing. I love the sport. I wouldn't take this job if I didn't love it. It's not like I'm I was earning millions of dollars. Um, <laughs> you know, I was earning a living. But yeah. I, but, you know, of course you can't say that to someone because sure. then if someone's sort of that far out of left field, they're already flinging out hominem attacks. It's just going to get worse. If you're like, hey, man, I'm a climber like you. I, I go out on the weekends and put up roofs. They'll just find some other way to trash you. So, I, yeah, I would just sort of leave myself out of it. Well, my theory has always been that, yeah, the, the forum kind of the heated forum debates are almost always the result of folks who are pent up in an office job, but they're climbers and they probably would rather be outside and they have a bunch of wanderlust. And so they have all this pent up energy and just take it out on various forums. Um, yeah, and so, I think you're right. <laughs> or they're drunk at, you know, they're drunk <laughs> at night and they, they lose, lose their better judgment. I think that's part of it too. No, that makes sense. Uh, did you ever consider taking any of your writing or editing work outside of climbing to, you know, bigger, broader publications or anything like that? Yeah, I did. And, and I have for sure, you know, I've written for outside, um, I mean, about climbing for them. Sure, but, but still about climbing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, wrote a, a memoir about the struggle that I had with psychiatric medications. And mm -hmm. I've written about that for, for other titles too. Um, and a lot of the editing that I do or take on is not related to climbing at all. I mean, basically I'll edit anything. If you pay me a good rate, I'll edit you know, whatever. I'll read it. Your, I'll edit your Unabomber manifesto. If, you, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you're going to pay me by the hour and pay me well, I'm, I'm, I'm a shameless uh, editor. So and some of these need some editing too. They get real wandery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're when you're working, when your manifesto gets beyond 200 pages, you probably need you need an editor. It's, it's time. It's time to trim it down. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that, that's classic you. I, I like that. Okay. No, well, you mentioned, uh, you know, I was thinking about leaving this maybe to talk about, maybe not, but let's, let's maybe talk about, you did write a book. Mm -hmm. um, you've written a couple, you've, you've written several books, but the, probably your most well-known book, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, is Death Grip, A Climber's Escape from Benzo Madness mm -hmm. in 2013. And so you did, as you alluded to, struggled with, help me get the pronunciation on this. What is it? Benzodiazepine? You nailed it. You nailed it. Man, yeah. Nice. I can sound it out. Yeah. I mean, I know you talked about this with Neely on the training beta podcast. I'll link to that in the show notes. I don't want to make you rehash the entire story, but. Sure. Yeah. So that was kind of like in the prime of your career, it sounds like. Time-wise. Yeah, it kind of was. Although, I mean, you know, I basically, I just had problems for years with use and then abuse of, of prescribed tranquilizers you know, at a certain point I got into trouble with, with painkillers and other drugs, um, mm -hmm. you know, tried to extract myself from this and got into a real mess with psychiatry who wanted to label me and, and pile on more drugs. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a business. They want you to be a patient forever. They want you to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to get off their pills, they're not going to be very helpful, which I didn't realize. And I was also in a very vulnerable place, but yeah, I mean, the book details that, um, you know, the main class of drugs that impacted me were these benzodiazepine tranquilizers, which I had been taking for, you know, anxiety, um, you know, but yeah, I, it, it, 
I'm sure it probably clouded my judgment. I mean, across all walks of life, including in work. Uh, and I was also just very, very sick as I came off them and afterwards. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, so there were periods, like some of those periods where I was freelance or not working in an office were also periods where I was very, very sick. Uh, you know, the most recent being at in 2013, I had a big setback that, Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I was freelancing at that point, but it was probably good I was because I couldn't have been in an office. And, you know, a setback, not in the sense that I was taking the pills again or anything like that, just that my nervous system is so fragile that, um, you know, it got triggered and all the symptoms came back again. So I, I still deal with those to a degree, but, you know, for the most part, they're they're manageable. And, you know, I, I have good days where they go away. Uh but it's certainly a reality I continue to deal with. So all of that's in the book and I've written about a lot of it online and, and mm-hmm. spoken about it too. Um, but it, it also impacted, you know, my ability to climb, I think was the sure. main thing. Uh, when I was on all those psychiatric pills and uh, I gained all this weight, you know, they, they, they script your metabolism and they make you slow and you lose your muscle tone. And then when I was going through withdrawal, I mean, I was so, so weak i couldn't really climb so i've had big chunks of my of my life where i didn't climb you know months and months and years where i didn't or couldn't climb uh so i'm wow. always grateful yeah i'm always grateful when i when i can climb for sure like i i don't don't take a good day out climbing for granted at all anymore i mean when you were dealing with like the underlying anxiety that led to this addiction was this something visible to others or something you could pretty well hide were you pretty high functioning and just kept it to yourself I was pretty high functioning. Yeah. I'd have panic attacks. You know, that's how it started kind of with having panic attacks, but they were pretty situational. And a lot of it was a bad self-care. I don't have panic attacks anymore. Uh, I certainly have days now where I'm super anxious, but it's, it's really pretty chemically driven. I mean, it's my nervous system. I'll just wake up and I'm sort of vibrating from head to toe and my nervous system's firing and firing and firing and it's purely chemical. Like it doesn't have anything to do with anything. And hmm. I'm like, well, today's going to suck, you know, or at least part of today will suck. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was pretty good at hiding it and I was pretty high functioning except in those periods when I was very, very sick. And then I was you know, basically not, not functioning. So did you intentionally take like a, I mean, I don't know if it was a leave of absence or you were just, did you request to work? more remotely to do this freelance work because of this? And was that like something that was known or did you just kind of be able to sidestep it a bit? Um, you know, so when I left rock and ice in 2005 was when I first was trying to get off all those pills and I didn't actually, my anxiety was spiking, but I didn't actually know what the cause of it was. Cause I was still kind of believing the lies that the psychiatrists were telling me. Um, so I had stepped away from my job at that point because of it, but the other times, um, no, it was just sort of happenstance, like where I was at with life and in, okay. in life. Uh, it just sort of co- corresponded with, yeah, freelancing or not. Okay. Well, I won't make you retell your whole book. You do have a book. So I'll put the link in the show notes for folks That's to right. explore Everyone that buy, journey. Buy my book. I need, I need money. I need, <laughs> <laughs> I need royalty money. So what was that like writing that book? I mean, where did you find the time to do that? What was the motivation? What did you want to achieve with that? Um, you know, I wrote the book in 2011 before we had any kids. And actually at that point I had left climbing and I was on unemployment. Um, 
I'd left because of you'd left the magazine climbing, not the sport, right? Yeah. I'd left the magazine because of those 90 and hundred hour work weeks. And there's actually something called constructive termination in which you lay yourself off because of, you know, basically un, unsavory, unfeasible mm-hmm. work conditions. And I'd been able to prove that and collect unemployment. So that kind of let me write the book because my advance wasn't that much. But I, I think I had unemployment for like three years because it was the recession. Um, but I was also freelancing. Yeah, I think I took about <clears throat> nine months to write the book. I'd already done a lot of the research on my own, like read a lot of other books and articles about... Um, benzodiazepines and benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome um and you know got it written i i wish i'd done a better job certainly you know i've never seen a royalty check from it it never sold beyond the advance but uh, Hmm. you know it is it is what it is i think it would have been better as a shorter book but uh they wanted a a longer book so so you did not self-publish you went through a publisher yeah i went through an agent and did like a a book proposal and a, and a book deal. So it's published through St. Martin's press. Okay. And so, so getting royalties was uh, contingent on you getting some degree of sales, I guess. Yeah. You know, so you get an advance against royalties. That's what okay. the advance is against future royalties. So, you know, it just really depends on how much your book sends the sales down the road and the royalties okay. are just a percentage of each sale. And I've sure. never gone beyond my advance. Uh, which I don't know. Well, whatever. So that's that's my my bad for not writing a better book. <laughs> well, I mean. um, so when that, when that happens, I mean, are you in charge of your own kind of uh, uh, marketing, or do they take that on? What does that look like? Um, they had a marketing division, and they gave some support. But I think these days, if you're an author, especially someone like me who's not like a known person, sure. uh, you probably have to do your own marketing, which I'm terrible at, and actually don't do any of. So I think that. That probably didn't help either, but I'm just not good at selling myself. Well, I have some selfish questions because I've also kind of looked into the more getting serious about writing from either a book or a, or on um, getting magazine publications or things like that. And I've never really fully pursued it, I guess, from a, ma- you know, because you spent so much time in the magazine world. What is the barrier to say? I mean, I understand, like, if you want to write for The Atlantic or something, you're going to have to probably be you know, you're probably going to want to write for something more attainable first, mm-hmm. but what is that barrier to entry for something like climbing or some of these magazines that don't have such a huge readership? You know, the way I always got my foot in the door with magazines and which is still probably valid for whatever medium you're working in now, even as magazines sort of change and go online and, and die uh, is, is to start small. Like don't go to a magazine you've never written for or, or pitch to an editor you've never written for and say, Hey, I want to write a 6,000 word feature. Cause they just don't know if you can deliver, right? right? They, they just don't know you're an unknown quantity, but if you reach out and say, Hey, can I do a 200 word news article? And Hey, can I do a 500 word gear review? And, and then you slowly establish that trust and that portfolio. I think that's the best way to go, no matter what title you're writing for. And then, at a certain point, you'll have enough clips and recommendations and referrals under your belt that sure. you don't have to do that anymore. You can be like, hey, so-and-so over it, whatever gave me your name. You know, I know I haven't written for you. However, I have written for whatever, the New Yorker or something. Yeah, I sure. don't know. I mean, I, I never broke into that 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 echelon. I guess I never tried that much. Um, 
but yeah, I think it's always you just start small, establish yourself as reliable, establish that you have a voice, establish that you have control of the story, and then you know build re- building relationships with editors is key too. Although honestly, mm-hmm. I mean cynically now I'd say I don't know because editors just get laid off left and right. So you might spend a year building rapport with this editor and they assign all this work to you and then you email them and their email gets forwarded to someone else because they're gone and the other mm. person's like, oh, I never heard of you. So yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess spread yourself as widely as possible too is what I'd say, like given how tumultuous things are in, in, in publishing right now, don't just go with one outlet, like have as many queries out to as many different places as possible. Yeah, and so I've heard conflicting thoughts on this. For a magazine, I know books are definitely different, but for magazines, is it generally okay just to pitch an idea and not just say, here's something I wrote, here you go? Or do they more or less expect you to send them something you've written and say, here, I would like to put this in your magazine? I mean, again, I think it depends on how far along you are in your relationship with the magazine. Yeah, a lot of magazines won't won't give you an assignment until you send something. If you're sending something you've already written, you're sending it on spec, right? Which means on speculation. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, I already wrote this. Take a look. If it works for you, great. Um, you know, and at that point, you know, the risk is obviously with you, the writer, because you mm-hmm. put the time and energy in to write this. But the plus side of that too, though, is that you can write whatever and you can send it to 10 magazines on spec. You can be like, hey, I wrote this. You know, I think as long as you're clear with each title that, hey, I'm sending this to multiple outlets, I don't think there's anything ethically wrong with it. So, yeah, I think, you know, doing that is a good way to get in the door, you know, just to showcase that you can write. Yeah, if they're not assigning to you, it's certainly a good way in the door. Okay. Yeah, and I had another writer in the climbing world just a couple of years ago tell me that it's this misconception that magazines don't have room for just random people to submit things, you know. He was like, it's mm-hmm. actually a real struggle to fill a magazine every issue. And so they're always looking for things. Is that still true? Well, it was. Okay. <laughs> I don't okay. know anymore. Okay. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the more nuanced side of that too would be, it's hard to fill a magazine with good things. Like you okay. could fill a magazine with junk. I sure. mean, we had a queries email at climbing and I would get so many queries, even though there was a page or at least there used to be that said, we do not accept trip reports and personal essays. We would get trip reports and personal essays all the time. Like my first time top roping at the gym, the time <laughs> I got guided up the Grand Teton. And it's like, you know, that's fine. That was a valuable experience for you, but you need to look at the magazine and look at what's being published and look at the guidelines and decide mm-hmm. whether or not you actually want to pitch this. If this is something that's going to be published. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. What was your question? I just, no, no, that, that was more or less it. I, I just, this, this writer yeah. had told me that, that there's actually more room than is maybe perceived for outsider content generated content. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think there is, but it has to be good. Right. But you know, yeah. I would, I would, yeah, I'd go through the queries and, and if it wasn't a bad query, I would keep it in my inbox mm-hmm. and I, I, if it was really good. I'd answer right away. And if it was good, but I wasn't sure where it would go, I'd keep it in my inbox for a while. And then, look at it and, and be like, oh, actually, we do have a home for this. And I'd reach back out to the writer. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, but I think that's that's the thing. Yeah, there is room. And you're always looking for new voices. And you're looking to cultivate new talent. And you're looking for new angles. And, you know, the problem with magazines, too, is they're, they're repetitive. So you want content that, you know, is fresh for readers. So when you get a query like that, 
yeah, it's it's always good. And some of them really did turn to be incredible stories, but you just don't know. But I mean, probably 70% of the stuff that landed in that queries inbox was just bad. I mean, it, it really <laughs> was. And it, not as a judgment against the people's efforts. I think they, they thought they were doing something good, but it was not something that the magazine would run, you know, and and they hadn't bothered to take the time to figure that out either. So I would often just delete those queries. It's like, I don't, I don't even want to answer this query. No, you don't spend all day responding to those emails. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, you just go down a rabbit hole. So if you were able to just write anything you wanted, you know, you still like to write about climbing, what, what kind of stories, what kind of articles, what kind of content do you really just get inspired to do that don't feel like a grind? Like to me, writing a gear review would be a total grind, but it seems like you mm-hmm. might actually even enjoy that. I love reviewing rock shoes. I, I know that <laughs> okay. on rock shoes. <laughs> That's awesome. Cause I, I would not want to write that post. Yeah. yeah I don't blame you. Um, I guess if I could just write whatever, I think the travel pieces were the most fun for me. Okay. The ones where you get to go somewhere and climb and meet the locals and do some photos. I mean, the last trip I took like that was to Cayman Brack. Uh, I down remember to the that. Cayman, yeah, Cayman Islands, like in late 2018. Oh, it was so much fun. I mean, like we just reached out to their travel board. And they're like, oh, yeah, sounds good. And they were very generous, paid for our flight from Grand Cayman to Cayman Brack, paid for our resort. And we were staying in like a three or four star resort with an all you can eat buffet. I think it was like a diving resort. Yeah. So everyone else there would like go scuba diving all day and then come back and and shove their faces full of food and and sit by the pool. But you know, we were out (laughs) climbing all day and I think they were like, who who are these people? Um, We didn't quite fit in, but it was lovely. I mean, it was on the beach and the climbing is incredible on that Island. Yeah. I think stories like that. And then, you know, I got to meet, not that there's like a huge local scene in Cayman Brack because it's very remote, but I got to meet and talk to the people who'd put up the roots and get the history of the island. And yeah, it was so much fun because hmm. you're on the ground, A, doing the sport you love, B, it's in some place that's new or unique to you. And then C, yeah, you know, you're doing this fun research and you get to, to pull it all together into a feature that hopefully inspires other people to go there. So yeah, I think that travel writing would be what I'd still do. But again, that's another thing that I think is just, been slowly drying up there's just less and less opportunity for it now because of the way that that um, publishing has gone and advertising so correct me if i'm wrong you had this feature i think i think this was your idea but at least i think you did most of the writing for it maybe i'm wrong but you had like mm-hmm. the crusty corner oh yeah that was just a column yeah, <laughs> yeah that yeah. was at climbing.com sure what was that all about the crusty corner Oh, I don't know. It's just me kind of ranting, I guess, just sort of taking the, yeah, I mean, I guess it's all in the name. It's just me as a aging climber, you know, ranting about stuff. Cause you're 50, right? You're just to put your uh, age uh, on this. Yeah. I'm 50. Yeah. I started writing when I was 45. So I was a little less crusty then, but I've always been pretty crusty. Even when I was young, I was crusty. Uh, so it, it just seemed like a thing to do, you know, and some of them were kind of heartfelt and, long form essays and some of them were, were just rants, which I, I realized and, you know, some of them connected with people and some didn't, but that, that's sort of what was going on there. Okay. Yeah. Pure, pure crust. <laughs> so just, yeah. A little rantiness. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, some of those are pretty fun. I certainly haven't read them all, but I remember, I remember quite a few of them talking about yeah. like the debates over whether to, what, what am I looking for here? Red tag, a new route, things like that. You know, there's some of these endless debates mm-hmm. that'll never end, but. Yeah, exactly. The climbers always argue about. Oh, good. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you read them. Yeah. 
Uh, well, let's maybe shift gears and talk a little bit about your climbing. I know this isn't really a climbing podcast, but before we do, um, you kind of mentioned this offline there, Dana. I really liked it, and I'd like to hear your thoughts because you were like, "Hey, I you know I can't come on here as any expert in financial independence or anything. I don't have that in my life." He's like, "But but you said one thing you do have is this ability." that you were able to design your career to fit climbing into it. And I think that's really far more beneficial for most listeners out there because most people are not at the, you know, the dawn of early retirement or anything. They're just trying mm-hmm. to have a decent career and manage climbing into their lives or whatever their sport is. I know not everyone here is a climber. So what does that look like for you over the years? Well, I mean, I guess I'll just say this. I mean, life is very, very short and it can be cut short at any time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that it's doing yourself a disservice to trade the best, healthiest, most energetic, productive years of your life in for quote unquote stability and security. And often you're just making money for someone else unless you have your own business anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So I always just sort of have tried to take jobs where I could go climbing. Like, you know, for me, it's not enough to just go climbing on the weekend, especially on the weekend, you know, these days, I mean, the cliffs are so busy. So often, if you don't want to stand in line, you need to get out during the week. Um, and I just really honestly couldn't take a job where that wasn't, where it wasn't understood that you could go do that as, as, as part of your own self-care and as part of your job. So I certainly like that about working for the magazines. I mean, gear testing, you would need to be out testing. I'd be like, well, I'll be gone all morning testing these new shoes or testing this rope. Hmm. Like, you know, what, what there's nothing to say. Um, but yeah, I just think, I mean, you could work and work and work and, and work your, work your ass off until you're whatever, have enough money to retire. But at that point, how do you feel physically and how much time and energy do you have to travel and go mm-hmm. do things you love? So I've always tried to keep doing those things while I was also working and to have the, the structure that let me do that. Uh, I think it's probably gotten a lot easier for people with the pandemic, and I hope that it stays that way and that we don't see this return to the eight to five, nine to five, have to be present in the office all the time. I mean, right. it's just so dumb. I mean, I could get so much more done <laughs> at home in five hours being left alone than I could in 10 hours in an office. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's horrible, right? The office, the interruptions, the gadflies, the people who don't do their jobs but need to look like they're doing something so they just walk around, you know, talking to everyone else. Like, <laughs> you know, the pointless commute. I mean, it's all just dressing up. Like, it's all so dumb. It's just theater. And it gets in the way yeah. of actually living your life. And I, I just, yeah, I never had much use for it. So I think... Yeah, I mean, these magazine jobs, I was very fortunate because you're working with other climbers who basically all feel exactly the same way at the magazines. I mean, the corporate owners were a different story. I mean, they're the kind of, you know, buttoned up folks who seem to need you there all the time. But And freelance, obviously, you could just make your own schedule. You know, you're like, on Thursdays, I don't work. On Thursdays, I go climbing or, or whatever the deal is. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's it's just been very important to me. And especially now, I mean... I just don't know how many years I have left where I can try to kind of climb my hardest before the, you know, I'm on the downhill side of the curve. I mean, I might already be, but I, you know, I don't want to waste them just sitting in some cubicle when it's like 75 and sunny out and it's a perfect day. I don't, I don't want to give those hours of my life just, just so someone else could have a, a bigger bank account and just mm. I'm not, not into it. 
so what tactics, obviously you live in the Boulder area, correct? So you have mm -hmm. access. I mean, I used to live in Denver. I know mm -hmm. what that's all about. You can be to most crags in a half hour or less. So that's sure. obviously a huge win. What other tactics outside of, hey, I got to go test some shoes, were you able to use to get more time just outside away from the office? That was the main one. <laughs> I would just put gear okay. testing on my schedule and block <laughs> okay. it out and be like, I'm gone. I'm gear testing, you know, deal with it. Uh, I mean, for me, I would work on the weekends. I'd need to have a boss who understood that. But, you know, I could trade a Wednesday for a Saturday. Mm, and, okay. And hope, yeah, I mean, hopefully there'll be more and more of that available to people too. I mean, I, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, workplaces are quote-unquote collaborative, but really, a lot of the time, you need to sort of go off and do your own work, whatever your area of expertise is. So does does it matter if I do it on a Wednesday or Saturday? No, it absolutely, absolutely yeah, yeah. It doesn't. So, yeah, I think that, too, swapping out weekends for weekdays. Or, yeah, just working odd hours, you know, like get up at 6 a.m., go climbing till 11, then come home and then work till, you know, from noon till seven at night, things like that. Yeah. Just kind of, kind of flex time. That That's what I hope sticks with this kind of post pandemic world is this at least flexibility. I don't know that remote work will stay as strong as it was a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I do hope there's a lot more flexibility. I'm like, Hey, you know, this is Wednesday. I got some things going on. I'm just going to be working from home and maybe some totally. weird hours. Maybe I'll work at eight to 10 PM, you know, but just let me get my stuff done and trust me that I can get that done. Yeah, but it takes, I think it takes an enlightened boss to do that. I mean, oh. so people, so people are so uptight about it, right? Well, you know, there's certain personalities that end up being managers sometimes, and a lot of people don't like to relinquish control. And mm. so that can be tough. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, but I do like your calendar trick. I used to do that myself, you know, and it wasn't like I was cheating. I wasn't not working my hours. It was just, I really would say, hey, you know, I got in the next time, like I am out of here by four. I don't mm -hmm. want any fires coming up at 345 that make me stay late. So I would, I just had hard stops in my calendar. So if meetings came up, they would just see I'm out of the office. And that's when I left. And, you know, I'm just not going to stick around because it was so easy if you wanted to impress people and stay another hour, another two, almost every day for various meetings or whatever that would just pop up throughout the day. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, if I had a time where I was like, hey, I'm going to go do a core workout for an hour, I put that on the calendar. And so... If people are trying to schedule meetings, you know, it's just they don't see that as an option. Yeah, yeah, don't give them the option. So, so, so it sounds like they respected that with you then for the most part. You were able to keep that structure. Well, I think it may be like you, you had earned trust. You know, it wasn't something I did like my first day on the job. It mm. would be something I, you know, you have to establish a rapport and, and they have to believe you can do good work and that you're responsible for getting work done without having to be watched 24-7. Yeah. Um, but I think it just gets back to just being reliable. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess you shouldn't do it. Your first day on the job, you don't block out the <laughs> afternoon for rock climbing. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I don't know if this guy's going to work out. Yeah, yeah. Pro pro tip, at least wait till the second day to block it out for rock climbing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so as an editor, did you have like manager responsibilities? Did you have to kind of be a boss? Um, sometimes. Uh, when I came on at AIM, I had people under me, which I didn't know and didn't necessarily love. I mean, as an editor, you're definitely responsible for kicking everyone's butt to get stuff in on time, mm -hmm. you know, so you have to be, you know, kind of a, a deadline Nazi in that sense. So I was always responsible for that. Um, yeah, but it's never like I had some, some huge staff under me and was, you know, dealing with that, that much, maybe just for a little while at, at AIM Media, but the previous owner of climbing magazine, but honestly, then 
there are so many other times where it was just me. I mean, there was, who, who was I going to talk to about anything other than myself? <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, I noticed you haven't been doing very good work lately. I stand in the mirror and, hey, you know, we need to talk about the quality of your work. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> so where the hell did you find time? You've put up tons of routes around the flat irons and all over the front range, like really good ones too. These aren't like slouchy, like five, eight junky things. These are things that hard climbers have a ton of respect for. And I've been on a lot of your routes and they're really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man. Like for real. And so you had three young kids, you've got a wife, you've got a full-time job. Where the hell were you fitting all this in? Was this your shoe testing time or? <laughs> um, yeah, it probably was. Um, some of it, I remember for a while there was community service time at one of the old at A Media, and I would block it out. I'd be like, if I'm bolting a route, that is community service. Oh yeah, I'd take it. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of it was that. I think I'm, I'm not one of these like manic people who actually has to be doing something all the time. Mm. Like it, it might seem that way, but I'm I'm not. I'm actually like kind of a little bit lethargic but i don't like to do nothing at all so you know with three kids and a job and wanting to climb i just make sure stuff is scheduled i think that's how it yeah. is so like my climbing calendar i write down my days i lock in partners and i'm, I'm always i'm always booked out to climb like a week in advance like i mm. can't can't handle like hey i'll get hold of you friday maybe we should get out next weekend you know like oh i'm like, just like you yeah it, it sucks right yeah i can't do that yeah yeah so i think that's one thing that let me get stuff done and i didn't make sure to only climb with like-minded people who are like that too like who have stuff going on in their life and yep. who want to make sure that when they're climbing they're climbing i mean that climbing time is is precious it's sacred and like totally. if people bail on me more than once i'm like well you're 100 percent off the list like <laughs> yeah let's let's not you know just don't don't waste my time um so i think that that's probably what what's let me get it done. It's just sort of climbing with people who are also like minded, you know, who care enough about their climbing to to not be flaky. Yeah, I mean, and there's a little hustle there, some mutual hustle. Like, hey, I got to get back to my family. You got to get back to yours or your job. We're here mm -hmm. to get things done. We're focused. Yeah, Actually. yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're out there to do that route, right, or to try it to give your best effort. You're not out there to like, I don't know, have a chipotle to burrito and do half a pitch and <laughs> you know screw around on instagram put a hammock up and yeah, nap for a while yeah exactly a little hammock a little bit of tune some vaping yeah none of, <laughs> none, 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 of none of that those are all those are all deal breakers yeah. <laughs> um yes yeah, so, i mean have you ever had a period where you were just a climber like in your youthful days or at any point in your life where you just climbed kind of full-time not like pro or anything but just that you just took time off away from work or anything like that you know, in college, I took a semester off just to rock climb and actually was a sponsored climber at that point. I have been okay. a professional climber or at least sponsored in the past, but I was always, again, so bad at self-promotion that I never really went beyond like some free gear. Um, yeah, so I took a semester off in college to just climb and then I got injured, so um, <laughs> it didn't last super long. But yeah, I guess, I'm trying to think. I don't think, other than that, I've always either been climbing and in school or climbing and working. Like I've never, never just climbed other than that one period. And, you know, I guess what that showed me is that my body couldn't hold up to just climbing five days a week. It was, it was too much. Yeah. I mean, I heard you talk on Neely's podcast about your birthday challenge on the moon board. You still kind of have a masochistic, like slam your body against the wall, huh? 
Yeah, I guess I did. Oh, that was a horrible idea because it completely flared up my arm and it's been taking me ever since October to, to, to try to get to heal again. So it was a bad, bad decision. What was your challenge for those who haven't heard? Oh, I thought I could set and climb 50 moonboard problems in, in one session, <laughs> but I only made it to, I made it to 25. So that's one for every two years. That's that, pretty impressive. Even, oh, thanks. Yeah. Even that was too much though. It just toasted my, my arm and shoulder, which are already kind of a little, they, they had healed. Like I'd done a lot of PT and they were in a pretty good spot. And then after that day, I was like, oh, I'm back to square one. That was uh, very unwise. Is that another tactic? I mean, you've got that moon board in your basement, you said, right? It's like your little training space. Do you mostly just mm-hmm. train there? It's in my garage. Yeah. It's okay. just, you know, 20 feet from where I'm sitting right now. I, I do. Yeah. I haven't used it in a while cause my arm's been bad, but, uh, it, it certainly is a huge resource. I have that moon board. It's, you know, 2019 set on a grasshopper frame on the master wall. And then I have a bunch of sort of spray walls where I do circuits and, can actually like link the circuits into the moon board. So it's, it's small, you know, it's just the back half of a two car garage, but it's extremely effective, like very good power and resistance training. Oh, sure. uh, and yeah, and I do use it a fair bit, especially in the winter, just cause the gyms here get so busy, you know, I don't want to deal with people, but I, I go there and I, I go to the gyms a lot too. Uh, so I have a keep a gym membership at the Boulder rock club. Mm, okay. So what are you excited about climbing wise? I mean, you're still climbing. I don't know how how close are do you do you think to your best ever? Are you right up there now at fifty? I think I could be with yeah. diligence. That's I think awesome. I have. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think I have to keep focus. Uh, I think you know, if you're 25 and you lose focus and you go screw around and surf whatever for six months, you can probably <laughs> yeah. come back and and pick up not far off from where you were. But at at fifty. I don't think you can. I get in your so, career. Yeah. 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 You'd come back and you'd just be like, Oh, I've lost all my muscle tone. I'm flaccid. I'm flabby. Um, so I do, I think because my technical skills continue to improve, um, as long as I am very focused on maintaining strength and then that I can continue to improve. I mean, I feel like it, I feel like in the last, you know, I never really trained until about three years ago. And then I started training. And in the last three years, I've been able to do stuff that equal to or better than stuff I'd done in my 20s. That's so, awesome. I, I, yeah, I'm optimistic. I don't know. How, how old are you, Chad? I am almost 38. 38. All right. So you got a lot of good years. Yeah, in front I got of you some too. good years. No, this is encouraging. Yeah, I think people should take heart from that. I mean, I, I've, I was worried that when I hit 50, like the next day I'd wake up and someone had flipped a switch and I'd be like, you know, <laughs> lose four number grades. I don't know why it's completely illogical, but it, it hasn't been that way. Uh, yeah. I mean, the one thing I have noticed that it doesn't take me longer to recover, which I think is pretty common for people as they get older, for some reason, I actually recover just as quickly now or, or quicker than I did before, but it takes me forever to warm up like yeah. for, forever. It just takes so long. And if it's cold out, like it often is in Colorado, I just can't climb. So uh, those are the two things that have kind of gotten harder as I've gotten older. Yeah, I've noticed that a little bit too. Certain days, it's just like, man, I think I need to do another pitch or two. This is my old standard isn't really cutting it. Mm-hmm. But no, I've, I've, that's encouraging because I'm still a good 12 years behind you. And so, yeah, that's really good to hear. Yeah, I mean, I would just say start the maintenance now. You know, don't wait till you're 50 to do that maintenance. Like, 
build in those habits now. Like every day I walk the dog for an hour and a half. Yep. yep. And then I do push-ups and I do core. And then I do yoga, like almost every day. Like those things need to happen uh, just to kind of keep me where I'm at. I mean, not every day, you know, but pretty much, yeah. So do you ever write just for fun completely outside of climbing? Um, I used to before I had three kids. Okay. No. no. <laughs> <That's> fair. <laughs> yeah. If it's not earning money, I don't do it anymore. Okay. Yeah, I know. A lot of people are like, oh, you should take this time to write a novel. I'm like, why? Like no one's going <laughs> to publish it. No one's going to read it. And I'll, my bank account will be, you know, dwindling. Like what I need to do right now is write and edit, like whatever pays the bills. No, I, I used to. I used to write fiction and actually have a creative writing degree, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe some of it too is just my own fear, fear of a failure, um, you know, of, of, of putting myself out there. It's pretty easy to justify, but also at least right now, I really, I need income. So uh, I, I'm not some award, award-winning novelist who's just going to write a book and, and and publish. Sure. Well, I mean, where do you think your career is going to go next? I mean, it looks like you're just kind of picking up freelance work for now, but do you have any ideas long-term or is that too soon to even ask? I don't know. I, I really kind of like freelance. I like the freedom it gives me and I like the diversity of the work. You know, some of it can be tedious, like proofing a book, you know, a 300 page book by like page 200. You're like, oh, why did I take this job? But, um, <laughs> yeah, it gets, gets, gets pretty painstaking, but yeah, I don't know. I think I'll freelance along for a while. I'm searching for jobs, but yeah, I don't really know. I think, I think my trajectory, if you talk to a lot of other editors who've been laid off and been in and out of mags, is probably pretty similar to them. A lot of them just go to freelance and sort of stay there. Cause at that point, no one can lay you off. I mean, obviously these, these places still need content, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always a need for content. There's always a need for editing. And in a way it's a more secure job to be freelance because you're spread across 10, 20 different clients. And if one of them goes under, it's not like someone's pulled the rug out from under you. So I may stick with that. The big problem, of course, is health insurance, which is, you know, a huge issue in this country. Sure. I mean, that, it's, um, you know, I'm not sure what we'll do. We'll try to find a solution, but with a family of a five, like we got to have something, you know? So your wife was freelance and didn't have it. She was on yours. Yeah, exactly. But in the Uh, past she had had an office job and I'd been on her. She had a job like at at backpacker and then at the university of Colorado Boulder and you know, myself and then our oldest son at that point were on our insurance. So, you know, that had worked out, but at this point, yeah, we're both freelance. So we need to figure it out. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, depending on your income, those ACA plans can be pretty cheap, the subsidies. So yeah, yeah, yeah check exactly. Those out. But well, um, yeah, because you're such a writer, I have to ask. It's my typical mm-hmm. can question. What some of your favorite books are? I mean, they they can be something you've read recently or an all time favorites. Well, yesterday. My son was reading Horton Hears a Who to Me by Dr. Seuss. That's a good one. <laughs> during during his reading, uh, you know, reading out loud. I I read The New Yorker pretty okay. religiously. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that seems to take up the limited amount of time I have at night to read. You know, I read before bed and usually I'm so tired that I only get about 10 to 20 minutes in. But I, every now and then I'll try to squeeze in a book. I did just read Underground Railroad. Mm. Um, which I know was a big book some years ago, but I'd only just gotten around to it now, you know, about um, slavery and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, it's this fictional imagining of an actual railroad under the ground, uh, 
you know, as a sort of metaphor for the Underground Railroad that, that helped, you know, uh, escape slaves free to the North and to the West. But it, it's a very good... Hey, I'm on the phone, buddy. <laughs> what? Ink Okay, that's fine. Thanks for letting me know. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> They're playing Portal on the TV in about an hour. Yeah, I... <laughs> It was a really good book, Brutal. I mean, you know, it's fictional, but the things that happen in it are the, the kinds of things that were happening to, mm, to the Africans yeah. who were brought here and enslaved. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a dark read, but a very beautifully written book. So I, I just finished that. Well, if you were into creative writing, do you, did you have any classics like college age stuff you were into? Um, you know, back when I could read a lot, I read a lot of Dostoevsky mm, okay. uh, and Bukowski. I really liked Celine, a lot of these kind of acerbic writers. Yeah, I think. yeah. Those those were some of my favorites. Um yeah, I think Charles Bukowski is probably my my favorite writer. I mean, he had no love for humanity, which is <laughs> often how I feel as well. And he was very, very good at putting it into words. I mean, hilarious. Same with um Celine, Louis Fernand Celine, a French writer. Um, and I think Dostoevsky, uh, Nabokov. I mean, they're so good at capturing the human condition. Mm, I think those, yeah. those, those were among my favorite, favorite authors. Well, thanks, Matt. I know your family is beckoning, so I'm going to let you get to them. But no, yeah, I guess I guess it's time for them to play Portal. I, <laughs> you ever played Portal? No, I haven't. That's fun. What it's is really this? good. The video game, the puzzle, puzzle game. Yeah, it's really good. Okay. It's, been all the rage around here lately it's an old older game but it's very good is there anything else we didn't talk about you wanted to discuss i don't think so no thanks for the the great questions and the the great oh, discussions certainly well i know you clearly from the reaction from you, you know your unfortunate layoff and all this you have a lot of support in the climate community i'm sure you'll find plenty of work and you'll be right back on top and uh this has been so fun i really appreciate it Oh, thanks. Yeah, this has been a blast, and I'm actually grateful. I did get a lot of support right after I was laid off, and it's led to a lot of the work I'm, I'm doing awesome. now. So awesome. I've been super grateful for everyone who helped. Cool. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks, Chad. Hey, guys. Thanks for hanging in all the way to the end on this interview with Matt Salmon. If you'd like to get in touch with Matt, head on over right there to your show notes. You'll find a link to clippingchains.com where you can see photos and everything about Matt that I decided was worthy for the show notes, of course, right? That's how this works. Also, if you want to stay up on the latest for everything else at ClippingChains.com, which is a whole lot more than just this podcast, put your email in that subscription box. You'll get a special newsletter with a lot of the behind-the-scenes content, what I've got going on in my life and other things around this project. And yeah, folks seem to be pretty excited about that, all right? Hey, guys, have a great week, honestly. Have a really great week. I really hope you do.